Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Today on Democracy Sausage, we talk to younger voters, ANU students in particular, and ask, is Australia ready for another female Prime Minister? Can climate change ever be dealt with by Australia's divided politics? And Labor's election loss in 2019, was it really all Queensland's fault? That's Democracy Sausage. G'day there and welcome again to Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. Joining me this week is the excellent Amy Ramikas from the Guardian Australia's uh, Parliament House Bureau. Welcome to our studio in the Crawford School, Amy. Thank you for having me. Big news today, of course, with Donald Trump uh, announcing that he's withdrawing the final troops from uh, special forces, I think, from uh, from Syria. You can kind uh, of just stop that sentence of big news today, Donald Trump. It's yeah. timeless. Well, that's right. I mean, we almost have big news fatigue when it comes to Donald Trump. Uh, uh, but this is significant news because, of course, he's uh, withdrawing what, what uh, a relatively small number, but an important number of special forces that the US has in, in northern Syria, leaving the Syrian Kurds, who, of course, have been great allies of the United States, uh, in this in this fight against ISIS, leaving them to the fate and management of Turkey. Now, of course, Turkey regards the Syrian Kurds as terrorists. They might have been allies of uh, of the United States and others operating there, but uh, but Turkey regards the uh, Syrian Kurds effectively as as terrorists. Uh, so, um, you know, we we see a very dangerous situation emerging there, and it's one that's emerged just. As often is the case with Trump, it's just emerged as a result of a kind of a, a decision by fiat, a decision by him. He says he's consulted people, but um, other uh, countries uh, relevant to this, uh, France and I think Britain, uh, were not informed. Trump says that he spoke to the Joint Chiefs, but look, the, the decision seems to have come out of nowhere and uh, it's a very worrying development, I think. Oh, it absolutely is. And so much of his policy is just done on the run. Uh, and that's one of, I guess, the big dangers of what the Trump presidency has represented for the world at large in that he'll have a chat to somebody and that will completely change America's viewpoint on something. We do have to remember that it wasn't so long ago that he did announce this and then there was a great big backpedaling from the Pentagon and from people within the White House and and it never happened. Uh, And you would like to think that's because those Joint Chiefs did get together and and tend to mould him in a different direction. Whether that happens again is going to be a bit more difficult because this one's been a bit more public Mm. uh, and it would look like a big back down to do it this way. So for the White House or for those people we like to think have sense within the White House to talk him round, they're going to have to come up with a reason for why he has changed his mind given that it's now been publicly announced. But that is one of the dangers for Australia too. We've obviously chosen to put our relationship with America on the forefront, uh, particularly in this big America versus China trade war that's going on. We've made a very big public statement that Mm. we side with America and these is part of the consequences of that. It's really interesting, isn't it? We side with America, but where does America side with? Who does America side with? Obviously just America under the Trump administration. It's almost more dangerous being a friend or at least more volatile, perhaps is a better way of putting it, being an ally and a friend than it is being an enemy. The enemies or the, the people that, as he sees it, are uh, you know in contest with the United States, China, Russia, North Korea, whatever, they, they can see a sort of a predictable path in Donald Trump's behaviour. But for allies... Uh, it's uh, it's a it's a it's a wild ride. It it is, and we're just not used to seeing diplomacy done this way. So that's that's the big problem for I suppose the world stage is how do you react to someone who is just so explosively reactive? Mm. And and Lindsey Graham, uh, for example, a prominent Republican, has has come out 
very strongly against this. Lindsey Graham, of course, uh, has also been involved in comments on uh, and, and, and uh, public statements in relation to the other matter that uh, has been a big news in Australia in recent days, that being Trump's attempt to get Australia and other governments to involve themselves in his process of discrediting the Mueller, you know, the Russia probe. Uh, you've written about this. You've written about Alexander Downer's role in this, uh, in an excellent piece in The Guardian last week, you know, where you just, you know, I think uh, very carefully or very skillfully, um, you know, deconstructed this ludicrous idea that, that Alexander Downer, who we know is a great, you know, solid conservative, is somehow an, an element, uh, an agent of, uh, of the left and of the, of the security state, the deep state that were for, you know, opposed to Donald Trump. And, and part of that, I think, is because America doesn't have a huge understanding of Australian politics. So when you say Alexander Downer was a former liberal minister, their mind immediately goes to, well, he's liberal. He was a Democrat. Yeah. Um, you very rarely hear him described as a conservative minister, where this is, this is a man who honestly would bleed blue if he could <laughs> and would find it. He, I don't think Alexander Alexander Downer would find it insulting that he's involved in some intrigue. I think he'd quite like that. I think he would find it deeply insulting that he's involved in intrigue on behalf of the left. That is something that just would not marry up with him. And uh, the fact that this narrative has been able to take hold in in many places, not not just Fox News where you would expect it, it it's all over the American media because he was a former liberal uh, leader and a, and a very successful in terms of, you know, consistency foreign minister for a liberal government. But he is probably, like I said in the piece, he sits to the right of Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> like he is deeply conservative. And so the idea that Alexander Downer would be involved in this sort of intrigue to stop somebody from the Republican Party being elected is ludicrous. There are some questions, I think, over how Alexander Downer managed some of the information that he heard. Again, I think for anyone who knows Alexander Downer probably wouldn't be surprised that he likes a bit of a chat at times and perhaps – uh, drink or a bit of a drink, um, and perhaps uh, following the reports from you know people like Catherine Murphy, there are questions over whether he was authorised to discuss his information with the Americans' um, ambassador in London uh, in the way that he did. But when it boils down to it, Alexander did his job as a diplomat of Australia, of this country. Yeah, he was Australia's High Commissioner in, in, it, uh, in Britain. Exactly. And, uh, he reported back that he'd had this conversation we with someone. We are part of Five team. Eyes. It is our job to mm. report back this information. It's part of the agreement. He did that job. Uh, the fact that the Mueller investigation came out of that one little nugget is not something that could have been foreseen because, as we know, there was a lot go else going on in the Trump campaign. There certainly was. <laughs> and, of course, at that stage, and it's an important point to make, at that stage, no one thought Trump was going to be the next president of the United States. No. I mean, no one even thought that on election day, quite frankly. Except for Donald Trump. People. Well, perhaps, although even Trump, let's remember, the Trump campaign on election day 2016 did not have a large venue booked for their celebration because they essentially believed they were going to lose. And indeed, on the popular vote, they did lose by, you know, something like three million votes. So, yes, it was a, a whole series of extraordinary events that occurred uh, and uh, it's been a whole series of extraordinary events that have come since. Now... We've got an interesting format today, a bit different from what we normally do, because we have a, a group of uh, ANU students, which I'm very happy to introduce now. And what we're hoping to do, I guess in the in the wake of um, the, uh, the the controversy around Greta Thunberg's um, uh, speech to the UN uh, and a whole lot of climate uh, uh, you know, uh, demonstrations that are going on, a number of other issues that face the world at the moment. We're interested in, in sort of, I, I guess, getting to the impressions of younger people, intelligent younger people who, to get your take on, um, on, uh, on the world, on these big issues and on the way that some of them are being treated. So we have, uh, Gil Ricky. Gil, uh, glad to have you along. Glad to be here. Olivia Island, how are you? Good. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Marvin Vestal. Good. Thank you. Quite a few of us here. And Noah Yim. Hello. So let's talk about some of the issues that uh, we're all, uh, I guess, hearing about. And let's start off with this climate issue. What, what did, uh, and I'm, I'll take whoever wants to sort of begin here, but what did you make of the, the Greta Thunberg speech and the reaction to it around the world? Because it's been 
absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? Well, when I Olivia, f- yeah. yeah, when I first saw the speech, I found it quite raw and very sort of authentic when she was speaking, and there was a very genuine fear within how she was sort of communicating about this issue and a very strong sort of frustration. So when yeah, when I saw it, I was really, really sort of inspired and also fascinated with where this would go and how people would respond. And so the response itself, I found even more interesting because it sort of had this divide where a lot of people would respond with absolute outrage because it was almost as if they were intimidated by this child or sort of adolescent who had so much to say and was blaming a whole generation for this. Um, And then you had sort of our generation responding in a very inspired sort of way. Um, mm. Yeah, uh, what I think is really interesting, uh, and you were sort of getting to it there, is the there was this there was an enormous amount of emotion in the way she conveyed that message, and I'm fascinated by the way that emotion was read differently. How it sort of it, it rang differently in different ears according to the generation. So I suppose the older older generation adults have been are used to politics being practiced in a certain way, used to public messaging occurring in a certain way. And here was this 16-year-old speaking very much from the heart with enormous passion. And for older voters, it seemed like some of them, particularly old grey men, were really confronted by this idea. It's almost like, you know, the emotion itself and the person itself was such that the content didn't need to be engaged with. What do you think, Gil? Mm -hmm. I think that for a lot of older voters, they don't really appreciate the level of anger there is amongst young people about the lack of action on climate change. Um, Young people have different views on how best to deal with climate change, but it's very rare you meet a young person that doesn't believe it's happening or isn't something you need to deal with. And for a lot of older voters, there's this whole narrative around, for example, Oh, it's, you know, panic, you know, young kids are panicked. They're, this is, you know, they're over the top. This is all ridiculous. But obviously they're panicked. Mm. The young people are the ones that are going to have to live with the, you know, a climate, a future where climate change is a reality. And it's reality now, but where things like, um, climate migrants are a thing, uh, where food shortages happen because we can't grow, um, crops effectively, rising sea levels, um, these sorts of things. So I think for a lot of older voters, they don't appreciate just how angry and basically ready for change, um, a lot of young people feel and they don't, they don't, and how they feel the time is really now that action needs to be taken. Yeah. Is there, is there a, I mean, within your cohort, do you also encounter people, though, that run the other argument, you know, the sort of standard argument the government's running, which is, you know, Australia produces 1.3% of the world's emissions, you know, there's there's um, there's not much that we can do about it, uh, this is all just kind of um, part of the, you know, the kind of woke world that we now live in where people are getting fired up about issues but there's nothing really you know there's nothing we really can do to change these things and we ought to just calm down do you get that counter narrative running at all or is that just running in the media and and in um and in orthodox politics perhaps amongst some very weird kids (laughs) um and obviously I'm coming from a perspective where I'm a university student and, you know, I'm from a fairly privileged background. So I might get a different perspective to other kids my age um, or young people my age. But um, I've definitely not met anyone that doesn't believe that climate change is real and doesn't believe it's something to even to act on. Even people from a more conservative leaning, you know, people that, you know, there are young people that vote liberal and that sort of thing, but even they believe that climate change is something that's real and it's something that needs to be dealt with. There's just sort of differing views on how to deal with it. There's no one denying that it's reality. There's no one saying, oh, we should all just calm down and not do anything about it. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a student from the US um, and I don't think it's necessarily the fact that people don't believe that climate change is is happening. It's the fact that it's politicized so much and, you know, they they see it as, you know, either you're with us or against us. I think that's partly the reason why people are apprehensive about climate change policy is because that, you know, um, it's just a political tool that they believe the Democrats are using to win elections. So – 
So you think that there's a sense in which this is this issue has been appropriated by the by the kind of left right divide, and each side's perspective is um, you know a, a very much a function of how they've categorised this issue, and that it's really a proxy for a war, war, wider left right war. Absolutely, yeah, that's what I think. So, yeah. What do you think, Olivia? That's interesting. I feel like from a US perspective, that probably makes a lot more sense with Democrats and Republicans. I find with Australia, within the media especially, I think regarding your earlier sort of question about whether um, there are people who have views about Australia can only do so much and everything, I think it's more about what is the whole international community doing and how can the whole international community as a collective deal with this problem? Because so, for example, the recent summit where Australia didn't attend and things like that, that I think angers people more. Um, and I think regarding it becoming sort of a politicised issue, in, in Australia's perspective, I feel like neither Liberal nor Labor is really creating much policy around it at this stage. Well, during the last election, I remember climate change was almost brought up yeah. as a big issue until the whole franking credits and tax and everything came up. <clears throat> and Labor tried to propose a plan, but the Liberals got them on like, oh, so where are your numbers, etc. I feel like it has been politicized in Australia to some extent, n- nowhere near what's happening in the US. But I just don't buy the argument that, ah, oh, Australia, you know what? It doesn't produce that much um, greenhouse gases and like emissions. We, we're doing more than most um, countries. We're, we're the good guys here, which is very much the narrative that our current government is pushing, and I just don't buy it. Like Even countries like England, for example, at the last um, UN climate, uh, climate Summit, they, they committed and they were invited to speak on the, uh, on the podium, but no, not Australia. So. Well, I think we were invited. We just chose not to attend that particular summit. But it's a good point that Noah raises. I mean, the conservative British government have a a policy to reduce emissions down to zero, and that's something that the Tories are doing. I mean, we all probably saw that footage of Boris Johnson's advisor taking a disposable cup out of his hand because it's reached the point in England, at least, where across the spectrum, being seen to use single-use plastics, being seen to not act on reducing emissions is toxic from the left, the right, and and the far versions of each side of politics. In Australia, we tend to think like, okay, well, I mean, I come from Queensland, which is the skin cancer capital of the world, because there is a giant ozone hole above where I grew up. So everyone I know now in their late 20s and 30s are having melanomas cut out of them. And we know that that is like a cause and effect. Like Mm. we went out, well, not me, because, you know, I come from Eastern Europeans who are obsessed with not ever going in the sun. But we come from a childhood where there was a big environmental impact because of the way that we had lived our life previously. There has been a cause where there is now a hole in the ozone layer because of that, uh, and people are now getting cancers at a higher rate than other people within Australia and the rest of the world. But within Australia, we tend to think this whole she'll be right, mate, attitude pervades across all of our politics to the point where we're like, well, what is the cost? Well, we know what the cost is because we had a carbon charge for a while and emissions dropped and then lamb roast did not come in at $100 a kilo, you know, like that wasn't a thing that happened. Emissions have started rising again since 2014 and what happened in 2014? We scrapped the carbon charge. We went back to doing exactly the same as we'd been doing before and we're seeing emissions start to rise because of this. And I think it has become politicised in Australia to the point where you think that anything, any action is going to cost you money. That is a bad thing. Therefore, we should not do anything. And that is the argument that runs counter to to climate emergency policies in this yeah, country. I, I agree with that. I mean, my sense is really that it is as politicised in Australia as anywhere else in the world. I, I really don't see any aspect of climate policy that doesn't end up being intensely, um, you know, sort of politicised and contested and seen within that framework. It's all highly risky. Today, Malcolm Turnbull, the uh, the former Prime Minister, is, is, you know, is on the front page of The Australian saying that, you know, his, uh, his party was incapable of doing anything to address emissions. He really, I mean, we'll see what the detail of this is, but 
He's flagging that his greatest regret as Prime Minister was not landing a coherent energy policy, which Australia hasn't managed to do for a decade or so. So it's a it's an incredibly contested issue in, in Australia, and uh, I don't know uh, where that's uh, you know how that's going to change. At the moment, we almost see uh, pressure within the Labor Party to step back from its uh, from the position it took to the last election. You know the ambitious climate uh, emissions targets and so forth, because it's looking to explain why it lost the unlosable election. And uh, there are people saying, well, perhaps we need to moderate our, our climate position. What's What's frustrating about the climate debate, especially at the moment, I think, especially from, for example, the Morrison government, is that I think after Wentworth and that whole thing, they've gotten to the point where they're willing to say, oh, yes, climate change is happening. You, there, For example, during the recent droughts um, on Insiders, actually, there was a there was an interview with um, uh, Little Proud. Little Proud. And he said, yes, we accept that climate change is happening. And we accept that farmers are suffering for it, but he wasn't seemed to didn't seem to be able to put two and two together and be like, maybe to stop farmers from suffering from drought is to actually combat climate change, which we've said is happening. It's just is there seems to be this almost double think where it's like we've accepted it's happening, we're willing to use that soundbite, but just not willing to spend any money or do anything about it. What about uh, on the economy? Uh, how do you feel um, about the way we hear the economy discussed in election campaigns? Uh, is, does it, you know, is, is it a um, an abstract idea? Is it a, a debate that you feel connected to, or is it some sort of uh, some weird theoretical thing that you feel locked out of? I mean, is that an, a legitimate public debate in your view or is it skewed towards those people who are already benefiting you know already got major investments in the economy what do you think olivia i find it really interesting whenever elections come around because i think a really big thing that people will say is like i vote liberal because they're really good at managing the economy um and so this is a really big general sort of uh statement um i find i find often in the way the economy sort of uh, used in an election, it's done so very simply. So people across all electorates can really understand it. So like key phrases like jobs and growth and things like that. Um, and so I quite honestly find it to be, um, something that I personally want to do more research into through my own reading and my own time when it comes to voting, because I don't really feel like the sorts of advertisement I'm getting from the election itself is really that easy to connect with. Anyone else have a thought on that, on the economy? Well, during election season, I remember a big talking point was the tax cuts, the three-stage tax plan from the government. I, I actually go the other way and think that the kinds of things we talk about in public debate during election time or during any other time about the economy are ridiculously complex. Things like franking credits, like... That was so hard to understand. I had to do like a solid 30 minutes of research to figure out what that was. Um, the tax plan, the tax cuts, I get them in theory, but these just seem like very nebulous ideas to me that I don't have like an emotional connection to. But I do understand that these things are important. Did you know that we're about to spend more money on franking credits than the education budget? Oh, fantastic. I love to hear that. Yeah, okay. It's just... But that message didn't come through to you during the election? no. Franken credits as a young person seemed like this just weird ethereal thing that just didn't right. impact our, like for me at least, didn't impact my life at all. Like yeah. I knew what it was. I didn't know what it was before the election, but I read up on it and understood it. But once the whole debate was going on and you saw these people getting really angry about Franken credits, I was like, it, this, this seems like something that just doesn't impact my life at all. It's this weird nebulous thing that's off in the ether somewhere. That's well, just- what about the principle of it, though? I mean, going to Amy's point about uh, how much it's costing the budget, I mean, the, the, you know, money being paid to people who hadn't been paid, who weren't paying income tax. Uh, because the whole idea was that the, you know it was meant to cut out double taxation, but in in fact it it was now cutting out any taxation and giving you a refund. Yeah, and that's right. So so people were going into you know it was getting to the point where some taxpayers are sub- subsidising others. You didn't need to necessarily understand all mm-hmm. the details to understand the principle. And going to other things like superannuation concessions, for example, which also will dwarf the. Uh, the, the the age pension in a, in a, after a period of time, I'm not sure in the next few years. I mean, these things cost the the right. budget a lot of money. Mm. Uh, I, I guess there's a disconnect here in a sense. Uh, do young voters 
look at the these issues and say, well, we need to fix up these structural problems in the in the budget because you know these things are these are basically um, you know boondoggles that have been put in there for mm. older voters who are doing quite well out of it. You know, baby boomers and the like with their two or three houses and these sorts of things. Yeah, I think um, in 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 the United States. Uh, young voters, especially college, uh, the ones that go to university and college, um, their main concern, their their biggest concern is college education and the cost and how that's skyrocketed in, in the states. Um, and so the big deciding factor for, for, many, for many young voters is how politicians would be able to alleviate their economic woes because some college students are coming out of university out of just undergrad mind you um with thousands of dollars in debt and that balloons into something that the economy can't can't handle um and so some people are predicting uh <laughs> economic uh education bubbles um that might uh be disrupted by um some kind of uh recession of some kind um, and that means uh, individuals won't be able to pursue higher educations. Um, so that, I think, is kind of the main propellant for, for young voters. I don't just think it's young voters, though. I was in Burham Heads, which is a tiny town outside Harvey Bay in Queensland, just after the election. And I was in their one pub and I was ordering my palmy and could hear this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Um, table of boomers talking near mm. me because mm. that is pretty much a town of boomers. And they were all really excited about the franking credits that they were going to get because Scott Morrison had won the election. And so I wander over and I was like, oh, hi, so do you have stocks? And they were like, oh, don't be don't be crazy. Of course we don't have stocks. Like we live in Barham Heads. And I was like, well, why do you think you're going to be getting franking credits? And they were like, because the Liberals promised us we would get franking credits after the election. And that's, that's what they held on to, that they were suddenly going to be getting these refunds for something that didn't exist for them because there had been such a huge narrative around we're taking money away from older people, we're going to be giving more money to older people. They were on the pension. They weren't getting anything. But in their minds, they had voted for franking credits. So I'm sure July 1 was a pretty exciting time <laughs> for some of those people. It kind of reminds me of the whole estate tax debate that happened in the US a while ago about how all these people who were never, ever going to be impacted in any way about the estate tax got all up in arms. They go, oh, my God, they're going to take away our money. Our kids are going to be poor. Oh, yeah. Well, we had that here too. The death <laughs> yeah. tax really yeah. took hold. It was nobody's policy. Yeah. But suddenly you had a bunch of Labor politicians standing at booths saying we are not putting on a death tax. The whole narrative seemed pretty ridiculous. Franking credits, fundamentally, when you looked at it, was a handout to older, wealthier voters. But the narrative around it was that Labor is, like you said, taxing older people. It's, you know, trying to take away your investments. And when they say your, they were talking to the aspirational middle class, you know, Howard's battlers, that whole group. But like you said, they weren't impacted at all. And this whole narrative was just ridiculous. Like it's it's huge amounts of money, huge amounts of money that we're just handing out to um, like wealthy people which could be spent on other areas, climate change, education, any number of any number of things, which is just being lost. And then they're cutting services, being like, we can't afford it. Well, I mean, that's right. That that does, uh, obviously, that's the trade-off. So what do you feel about the Labor Party now in terms of these issues? Labor obviously was pretty muscular during the, the lead-up to that election. Everyone thought in the Labor Party and many in the commentariat, I was one of them, thought the Labor was going to win the election. Labor didn't win the election. It is now, I mean, the franking credits policy, I think, is number one on the chopping block of things that they will walk away from. Where does that 
whose fault is that? Is that the fault of uh, Labor for doing that or, or are they just recognising the electoral reality that if they have policies like that, they will get caned even I, in elections that they're supposed to win? I think the policies, I mean, there's this whole thing about becoming a big target for Labor. And while I think that's partially true, they didn't, they sort of um, didn't really do a very good job of explaining their policies very well. One of their core issues that I noticed was the narrative around their policies. They just never controlled it. Um, the narrative, as soon as they announced the franking credits policy, instantly the narrative was they're taxing old people. The narrative around you know climate change, when it should have been, oh, we need to ha- take action on climate change to deal with these issues, to deal with you know like these core problems that impact your young young people's futures. Instead, the instant narrative was, oh, but how much is it going to cost? They just, throughout the election, they just never controlled the narrative. They never were able to get on the front foot with their policies and create the story around it. What do you think about that, Amy? Was that Bill Shorten's fault? Was that uh, was that Labor's fault? Was it uh, was it the fault of uh, media? I mean, obviously, there was some I think it was a storm of media. a storm of all of the above. I mean, media doesn't create narratives, but media were asking the questions, and media were writing and you know broadcasting those reports. But at the same time, I mean, Labor was in charge of their campaign, uh, and I understand why they couldn't give answers on their climate policy because that was something that they couldn't actually answer in terms of finances until they were in government and had spoken to all the necessary stakeholders. That was literally a, we want to do this. We need to go work with people to work out how best we do it because they couldn't tell you how much it was going to cost, you know, from agriculture, how much it was going to cost from electricity, because it was going to be a bit of a jigsaw puzzle putting that together. But Labor- They must have known that going in. I mean, I remember that press conference where- um where Bill Shorten first got kind of nailed on that question. But he'd been nailed on that question beforehand. Let's remember there was a vacuum on that day where there was no other story. Sure. So the story became a journalist arguing with Bill Shorten. That's but they must have, they, they needed, to, I mean, they, the way I wrote about it at the time was that they went into the election campaign effectively with climate change, their, their superior position on climate change as a positive. They came out of that sort of press conference, which was only on about day seven or eight of the campaign, um, sort of on the defensive. But like from I'd- that moment on, the, 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 going back to Gil's point about narrative, the narrative seemed to be Labor can't quantify the cost to the economy of its ambitious climate targets. But then is that a failure of us for not being able to explain why Labor couldn't quantify their policy? Labor, and I'm not defending Labor, I thought they ran a pretty crap campaign to be honest, like they, their narrative was hijacked and they allowed it to be hijacked and we can only report on what is happening. But Labor were saying we can't tell you for X, Y, Z reasons. We had business council saying we can work with them on this. We had farmers people coming out saying we can work with them on this. We had people who were in the renewable energies tech saying we could work with them. Did we hear about that? No, we just heard that you can't put a dollar figure on something that you couldn't actually put a dollar figure on. So was that a failure from us for not being able to explain, here's why you don't have a price on this? You can't just necessarily say, well, that's going to cost $60,000, you know, to each industry for within this square kilometre. It doesn't work that way. So I don't think we necessarily explained all of the policies as well as the information that we were getting in as well as we could have. But I think, I mean, as as Bill Shorten has said, he didn't, he underestimated the impact of some of their policies. I remember walking around Queensland and could not find a single person who liked Bill Shorten for no other reason than they just did not like Bill Shorten. I remember three days in Townsville, which was uh, in the second last week of the campaign, and people were resigned and angry but really didn't like Bill Shorten, so kind of went with, well, we know what we're going to get with the status quo, this idea of something being different. Who knows how bad that could be? There were a lot of elements about why Labor lost that election. People voted for the status quo. When you look at the numbers, it was terrible because Labor had huge expectations, but the parliament is pretty much back to where it was in 2016 on terms of a number. On the numbers. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But they did, as you have already identified. Expectations. Yeah, the expectations were huge, but also your home state, Queensland, and WA, uh, particularly Queensland, though, you know, what was the primary vote for Labor in Queensland? It was around 24, 25. Yeah, it was bad, but Victoria was meant to be make up for that, and Victoria didn't shift. 
You can't just blame one state for this. The rest of the states didn't shift either. And I think, again, that's the narrative that I've noticed taking hold and seen in my mentions. Like, I can't mention that I'm a Queenslander on Twitter anymore because I just get all of this hate, (laughs) like, just piled on me for, you know, destroying the country. And I will defend Queensland because Queensland voted for what it believed was in its best interest. The southeast went one way, central and north Queensland went another. But New South Wales didn't shift. They almost lost Macquarie. Like that that doesn't get a lot of like, you know, um, mm. conversation about. Victoria didn't move. South Australia didn't move. Tasmania voted to – I mean, Tasmania is moody, but they still voted the other way. Mm. Why is it that we're so quick to blame – Queensland in all of this. And that's a conversation for another time. It's that primary vote. Yeah, that lost them a senator, but in terms of seats, it was two. Well, there's still what, not a Labor seat north of the Brisbane River? Yeah, but still, like, that, that's that been the story. I mean, they've had a couple of higher seats, obviously Herbert, but that was 37 votes the last election. Yeah. Mm. Queensland didn't really do anything other than what Queensland has done for several, several elections. Where was the rest of the country? Okay, but Labor nonetheless, and, you know, sticking with Queensland for a moment, Labor nonetheless struggled to articulate its position in that election campaign because it was so worried about the very thing you just talked about, Queenslanders voting in sort of what what you might call a rational self-interest. So central and northern Queensland swinging away from Labor because of its position on on coal, Adani as the sort of, you know, the big kind of trophy point there. Um, what what did younger voters make of Labor's um, what you might call kind of dual-track messaging here, uh, not being particularly decisive on Adani, for example? Did it Did it play badly for them? With other voters, with young voters who have green concerns, I think I think it did. I think it made it really, really hard for people to know what they were going to vote for, even though they wanted to vote in that sort of leftist direction. It was sort of very. The campaign itself was, yeah, it was equivocal. Yeah, it was. It and, and did that and did that push voters to the greens, <clears throat> Olivia? Do you think? Um. It was interesting because I think a lot of people have views on the Greens as also being quite hard to sort of understand what their direction is and also a lot of people that I've interacted with find them can be sometimes quite extreme too. But, yeah, I think it did to an extent push people to the Greens but also push people to Liberal as well in certain ways um, because they just couldn't really see the direction that Labor was exactly going in. Yeah, I think, um, you know, coming from the United States, sorry to apologize for bringing up the United States so much. No, but no, 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 do not apologize. <laughs> that, I just went on a 10-minute rant about Queensland. It's fine. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of perspective um, that I'm coming from as I'm studying abroad here. It's a here. perfectly valid perspective, <laughs> let me just tell you. Um, but from what I'm hearing about Australian politics from the time I've been here, um, I'm seeing a lot of kind of similarities with the way that the elections turned out, especially in uh, 2016, and how you know Donald Trump got elected into office. Mm. Um, I think the middle class, which is shrinking, um, by the way, in, in the states, I think the middle class was um, swayed to vote for Donald Trump because he they he promised them um reassurances that jobs will come back manufacturing jobs will come back um things like that in in states swing states nonetheless um that mattered in in the the electoral college um and so when when you have a campaign like that and then you have uh, a congress that's most uh, that was republican controlled in in 2016 that was kind of like the perfect storm for something very similar to so what you guys are experiencing here in Australia to happen um, luckily, midterm elections happened just last year, and there was actually a, a, a swing in the other direction. Um, really young uh, members of the House of, House of Representatives got elected in, very young, mm. um, headed by uh, Cor- uh, Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez, a long name, um, but her her leadership um, signals to the Democrats that there is there is a sea change happening. That I think within just two years, there was this change in the momentum that I think people are now swinging to the left. They're now swinging Democrat. Do you think if the Democrats get their act together that they can unseat Donald Trump in 2020? 
I think so. Yeah, that's entirely possible. I think I think two big things are important for them to win the election, right? Is how Pelosi and the Democrats handle impeachment. Um, I think that's going to be the biggest issue that a lot of um, the public is going to look at. In addition to the fact that I think there are, uh, I think two camps within the, De- the Democratic Party or the Democratic voters. You know, one is the establishment, uh, the very the older generation, right? So Biden, um, I think Sanders, because he's been a, he's been in Congress for decades now. So that older generation, um, not I mean, going to tell you the truth, white, right? So there's that. Not, there's that lack of identification with your with your presidential candidate, whereas you have candidates now like Tulsi Gabbard, um, Andrew Yang, the very young um, uh, presidential candidates that are coming in and kind of shifting the perspective um, and are becoming more representative of the Democratic Party. So I think those two issues are what's going to spell you know um, the Democratic Party within the next year. Okay, well that's that's very interesting. Uh, what what do you think about? And I, I throw this question open. Uh, what what do you think about Anthony Albanese? Is he a possible Australian Prime Minister? I think he's been doing a better job recently. Um, Anthony Albanese was really hard to find right after the election, but these days he's kind of you know getting more airtime. He's he's getting his face on TV more. Um, I don't think. He's going to be a prime minister, though. I I think Labor has to go through a major cultural reform and just kind of get over losing the unlosable election. And I don't think Albanese is the person to do it. I think just sorry to bring in state politics into this, but look at what's going on in New South Wales right now with ICAC, and I think Labor needs to go through a big, big cultural shift and. There needs to be some kind of renewal of the old guard. And Albanese, in my point of view, is very much part of that old guard. Mm. Labour, I think, after the election, they were sort of getting pulled in so many different directions. Um, and I think Albanese, even though he is like the new opposition leader, seems to be also getting pulled in lots of different directions. On one hand, he wants to sell himself as, you know, oh, I'm a left-wing warrior whole thing but on the other hand he doesn't want to um confront the government too much on economic policy or national security policy he he doesn't it doesn't really seem like he's been able to solidify what he necessarily stands for and labor doesn't and i think before the next election if they're going to win labor needs to solidify what its base is and who they're and who's voting for them basically What do you think, Amy? Do you think Anthony Albanese will be Prime Minister ever? I think it's too early to tell. I don't think that there is a single normal person in this country who's thinking about federal politics right now. (laughs) I don't think anyone is switched on. I don't think anyone is paying attention. And if you're going to throw a lot of things at the board on both sides, I mean, Scott Morrison's trying out a few things in terms of foreign policy and different narratives and stuff as well. Now's the time to do it. Throw everything you have at the wall and see what sticks. People won't start to to switch back on, I think, until about halfway through next year. We've got the American elections to get through. We've got Brexit to get through. And that's kind of taking up all of the bandwidth that we we have to focus on politics. No one cares about what Australia is doing domestically. Yeah, that's true. Although it's, uh, I'm wondering whether there isn't a degree of kind of prediction wariness now creeping into the press gallery, of which I've been a member for many years and which you still are a member of. Um, after the election, you know, having got it wrong, most of us did anyway, um, you know, uh, is, is there a wariness to actually say or is it, uh, or is it just literally that we're two and a half years out from an election that's just I think laughable, really? We are two and a half years out from an election. I mean, you know as well as I do, there's no great group think that goes on in the gallery. We don't have our daily meetings where we go, this is the message, everyone, that we're sending out today. I mean, there's still just as many debates in the hallways. I think it's just what we're being presented with and what we're being reported on. It is the election was only in May. Like it's just gone October. There's I suppose, just- though, the question re- – that's a very good point. But I suppose the question really goes to whether Scott Morrison is is the answer 
you know, whether he is – I mean, bearing in mind, this is a government that's now into its third term. He's trying to, you know, sort of position his government as if it's in the first term. And if he's successful in that, I think that will certainly be useful for him in, in getting a fourth term for the coalition, which would be his second real term. But um, if he's not the answer – then you know labor obviously has to have someone who is and that that you know is is albanese sufficiently different is he the future of the labor party or is he just really as as noah was saying is he really kind of a relic of the past i, I say that with some reluctance because he's <laughs> about the same age as me but <laughs> <laughs> i just i honestly and I, I know it feels like, you know, a hedging bet, but I honestly don't think any of us can answer that right now. We've got to wait for the review to come out and Labor to finish its mere culpas and then start rebuilding policy because at the moment we don't know what Labor stands for. At the moment I don't think it matters what the people who aren't in government stand for. I think that's going to have to be a shift if the press gallery, inverted quotes, makes. It's that one. It's what are the people who are actually in government doing about this. But on Scott Morrison, he has some authority authority now because he won the unwinnable election. But all of those same elements that were in the party room for Tony Abbott and for Malcolm Turnbull are still in the party room now. We're only one or two by-elections away from minority government. Uh, and that is something that is starting to creep in to certain people within the Liberal National Party room. They're starting to think about that. Uh, there are several high court challenges going on at the moment. Like this isn't, this isn't stable. This is not something that is just going to be consistent. There is a lot of turbulence happening underneath the government's waters at the moment. And I think when we all start to pay attention after the Christmas break, we're going to start to see some of that because we don't have an energy policy. We don't have a drought policy. We don't have an agricultural policy. We don't have a policy for how to deal with the coming uh, global headwinds in terms of the economy because we've spent all of our money on tax cuts. Once all that start, stuff starts hitting and it will, you're going to see the focus switch back to what is the government doing. What about on the leadership side, uh, thinking about it from a, say, a gender perspective? Uh, we've got a couple of blokes there. We've only ever had one female prime minister in this country, and we know that was an incredibly turbulent process. Would Labor be, I mean, what, what, what do you think about someone like, uh, and I'll pick a couple of prominent names out, a Tanya Plibersek or a Penny Wong? Penny Wong's in the Senate at the moment, admittedly, but that, that, you know, things like that can be changed if there's sufficient will to do so. What do you as young voters think about either of those two um, or, you know, just that broader question about whether it's time we actually had a more representative parliament and time we had more women in leadership roles? Olivia, I'm going to, I'm going to go to you on the spot there. Um, look, I think, I think the, the way Gillard was treated um, sort of almost, I think, made people take a step back from that. Um, and we're now getting to a stage where it's been quite some time. Um, I think the, the when, when when it comes to Penny Wong, I think she quite often has had that sort of um, debate behind her for quite some time. I'd also say like within social media, I've seen that uh, for many years now. And so it would be really, really interesting with that sort of leadership. I don't know if Australia is ready almost to an extent because – the level of sort of gendered comments and sexism that still exists at times is still quite harsh and it would be a really, really hard time for a female leader. And so I would like, I would love to see it and it would be awesome to see, but I don't really know if it would be coming around anytime soon. Marvin? Yeah, I think um, as long as it really happens organically, right, because – this is a democratic system, right? I mean, we can't shy away from that. C compared to the midterm elections in twenty in last year, all, of, all most, if not all, of the new representatives um, that got elected were women, young women mm. um, of minority uh, groups. So, and that ha and their campaigns happened organically. That it wasn't forced. It wasn't there wasn't a forced uh, narrative there. It was just gr grassroots organic processes that. Women got elected in because the the their their constituencies viewed them as the best candidate. Mind you, they basically got elected um, in places where incumbents were white, male, 
um, of the older generation. So in my opinion, I think if, if Australian politics follows what happens in what happened in the midterm elections, I think that might suit well for you guys. We have branches. <laughs> yeah. And everyone there is on merit mm. as they have proven time mm. and time again. This is the Liberal Party you're talking about? Well, it's, I mean, I'm, you've seen Labour elections as well in mm. terms of candidates. So. That's true, but Labour has got very close yeah, to 50%. Yeah, ha- Labour and, has. And if and Labour had won, the election would have been at 50%. Yeah, but I just mean in terms of what Marvin's saying, it did happen organically, mm. but that was public voting oh, in yes. from candidates, whereas our candidates are chosen behind mm. closed doors and then Enough. put forward as this is the candidate. It's a, a step removed, mm. I suppose, mm. from that authentic process. I'd love to see more women in leadership just everywhere, not only in parliament, but in the corporate world, in academia, etc. But just regarding politics, I can't speak much on Tanya Plibersek, but I don't think Penny Wong wants to go into the House. And also, I think the likability of Penny Wong is because she's in the Senate. She's kind of that, you know, reliable Labour figure while all that goes on in the House. I, I really like Penny Wong. I hope she stays in the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I like I like Penny Wong and I like Tanya, but and considering but considering Tanya's in the house, if you were Tanya, would you want to take that position considering what Gillard went through? Well, I'm she sure she was, would be- she was going she, her mm. name was initially mm. going forward for this uh, you know, in the post Bill Shorten period after the election, her name was definitely floated. I know uh, that she was in, you know, she 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 liked the idea. Mm. Uh, but then, for whatever reason, she stepped back. I'm sure she'd be very. I'm sure she'd be very good. And my hope is that Australia is a different country to what was to what it was when Gillard was prime minister, and that she'd have a less you know less comments in the media about her makeup or you know her like her partner or whatever. Um, I I would just I'm I'm I believe and I believe Tanya could do it, but I would be worried about the media like about the the scrutiny and like the really sexist scrutiny that any future Labour female Prime Minister would come under. It's a rather worrying note to end on. Thanks so much for uh, your contributions today. Thanks to Amy Ramikas from Guardian Australia and thank you to Gil Ricky, Olivia Ireland, Marvin Vestal and Noah Yim. It's been really terrific having all of your uh, uh, contributions today on Democracy Sausage. Join us again next week when we will... Uh, chew the fat and uh, gristle and everything else of uh, public affairs and we'll look forward to talking to you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.